But we must keep moving. We must keep going. If you can't fly, run. If you can't run, walk. If you can't walk, crawl. But by all means, keep moving. I can't believe we've come this far in our series without quoting him. But that's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1967, less than six months before he was assassinated. The words come from what's often called his Blueprint for Life speech. He's given advice to middle schoolers, just one way to accept their gifts and limitations, to inject their lives with purpose, and to go out and make a difference. I'm Michael Joyce, host of the Health in All Matters podcast from the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. And we open with these words because this episode is about organizations and individuals who took up Dr. King's dream. We wanted to explore what drives their work, learn what's doable, and what really makes a difference. And we certainly captured some of that. But along the way, we got much more than we bargained for. Not so much the quantitative or the measurable that we can so often be smitten with. Instead, we got the immeasurable, the hard-earned insights of hardworking people who are immersed in understanding and challenging the status quo, our 400-year history of segregating color and power and opportunity in this country, these often ununited states of America that can be so prone to mistakenly soothing ourselves with the questionable catchphrase that all men and women are actually created equal, or should I say, treated equally. Let's start with Adair Mosley, who's the president and CEO of Pillsbury United Communities, a Minneapolis-based community assistance organization. And so the work that we do day in and out um, is ensuring that our communities and the individuals that live and labor there are um, activating their personal, um, social and economic power and that they can fully on their own terms realize the, the dream and goals that they have for themselves and their families. I know you guys are over 140 years old. And I remember from the first time I researched you because I had not heard of you. And I didn't know that you ran like two food shelves and two cafes and a wellness resource center and helped people with chronic disease management. You have playgrounds, low-income grocery stores. I hadn't even known that you had a news radio theater so we could hear voices that we don't often get to hear. You guys are all over the map. Give me a little sense of the history of how that's evolved over, uh, over 140 years. All of it dates back to the settlement house um, kind of roots. And this is at um, the turn of the century when we saw new immigrants coming to our country. And then coming into the kind of the Great War and the Great Depression, what we saw, the role of the settlement houses were critical in war efforts in helping with drafts and in setting up um, athletic facilities for training exercises, but um, also helping to meet the shortages of food and clothing and other basic necessities. And so where um, our most vulnerable populations were having hard times, settlement stepped in. And I think the important piece is everything that I've talked about in, uh, during those two, the, the, during that time frame was largely for immigrants that were white. And um, there was still isolation of uh, black and black and brown communities. In other words, people of color were not allowed in the majority of settlement houses. Now, first, a little history about these houses. 
They were part of a very radical social reform movement that started in England in the late 1800s and quickly came over to the United States. At the center of the movement were the houses, which were deliberately placed in poor areas and designed so that the middle class and poor people could live under the same roof, with the expectation that the poor would benefit from the education, role modeling, and charity of the more fortunate. But after World War II, things changed. Many immigrants, most of whom were white, were able to climb the social ladder, and settlement houses found themselves serving communities they had ignored for decades, communities of color. Even within our history, the structural racisms, the inequities, the, the otherness exist, and I think it's something that we've had to reckon with it as an organization. And reckon they did. Pillsbury United Communities, as you heard me say earlier, offers an incredible range of services in four of the most under-resourced neighborhoods in Minneapolis. And it's interesting to note that, on the one hand, they have moved away from the paternalistic and somewhat condescending model of the original settlement movement, but on the other, they've retained two of its strongest priorities, proximity and connectedness. I think most of what we've learned in our history, and I'm certainly not the historian, has um, really been about centering communities' voice and, and our level of proximity to community. We've always uh, been thinking about good ways of how, how do we have charity work inform something larger and more systemic, of saying this good charity work is going to inform transformative Im and have transformative impact. And we are doing a disservice if we're not rolling this up to something larger that is ultimately going to move the needle around these stubborn, systemic and structural uh, barriers that exist largely for black and brown people. You know, language becomes an important part of this. So often when I talk to people who are trying to have an impact on something as as large and entrenched as structural racism, you start to hear words like impact and outcomes, and things get very problem-oriented very quickly. And then comes in this language of, of the people you're trying to help, of deprivation, of degradation, of victimization. And I wonder if sometimes that language, we get caught up on it and forget other language like, like healing and empathy and humanism. I believe the narrative of hopelessness, despondency, and brokenness does not recognize the power and the asset of, of people in place. And I think part of creating a more just society, a necessary part of that work includes changing the stories that are told as well as who's telling the story. And our communities deserve that we share their story of triumph, resiliency, and drive, despite, right, despite the covert and overt kind of institutional and structural racism, despite inadequate services, despite broken systems, despite continued colonization and extraction in their communities, they are making a way out of no way. I'm glad you brought up resiliency, Adair, because it's a bit of a double-edged sword, isn't it? I mean, I get the fortitude part of it, but much has been written that it can actually contribute to normalizing unfairness, sort of become code for grin and bear it, or even romanticize unacceptable conditions that we shouldn't be placing people in to begin with, right? We don't romanticize resiliency. 
True resiliency emerges when we have equitable systems, infrastructures, and supports around people in place. And we do that through economic drivers of strong policies that uh, that really fortify a community from what the inevitable adversities that will come to the doorstep of largely black and brown communities. How difficult has it been, do you find, to penetrate legislation and policy to be at the table when those decisions are made and those conversations are had? I think that most of our systems are embedded with kind of um, white supremacy, right? Right. Um, systems of white supremacy and thought. Um, and oftentimes individuals and policymakers that are making decisions about communities, they have no level of proximity to or understanding. And that has been really the, the, the normative behavior that has, I, I believe, exacerbated and gotten us to this place of deep and entrenched inequities in our society. And yet, I think that there is more in this moment, this opportunity of saying um, no decisions um, um, about us without us and saying that we have to be at, at the table um, I think we need to foster more of that. I think we need to be more disruptive in that. Creating inclusive spaces, making tables longer, and 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 making sure that we're centering and hearing the voices of those that are t that stand to be most affected by our decisions at the table. And that is something that has categorically been missing for centuries. And then there's that reality check that we might as well just put out on the table in its most candid and raw form, and that is needing money to get things done. We've certainly underfunded and we've siloed and we've um, done a lot of incremental funding. And at this moment, the investments, the financial investments need to be as big as the problem. There's there's a couple things that we need, right? We need um, we need the innovation and creativity and the ideas to emerge, and we need the resources, the financial resources that 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 match those ideas to be able to bring it to fruition. Um, I think that this moment, um, particularly both in COVID and um, following the murder of George Floyd that um, more um, philanthropic institutions, corporations, foundations understand the severity and the depth of the problem and recognizing that you're going to need these types of catalytic investments. So I remain hopeful that many of them are, are challenging their own institutional practices. Many of them are now saying, hey, we've been doing this wrong. We need to listen to the institutions and the organizations that are closest to the work. And we are going to believe in people and we're going to believe in what people tell us they need. Before we move on to another organization that has been a leader in confronting racism at the community level, let's explore the role of public health when it comes to community level change. Though they may describe it in various ways, most of the public health practitioners I know are very passionate about this core value of their profession, to educate, empower, and mobilize communities when it comes to their health. Rachel Hardiman is a great example. Dr. Hardiman is an associate professor at our School of Public Health who studies the impact of racism on health outcomes 
especially for mothers and their kids. She has a strong commitment to what's called community-based participatory research. More on that in just a moment. But first, I asked her, traditionally, what has been the relationship between public health and communities of color? You know, there's not one singular sort of story about that relationship. It's very complex and kind of convoluted and has shifted and changed quite a bit over the years. I feel like when I started studying public health, a lot of what I was being taught was very much around the fact that we have these health disparities, so communities of color have worse health outcomes, and the goal was really really sort of to educate folks and you know, go into community and teach people how to eat healthier or how to exercise or educate communities about what they need to do to be healthier. Um, that certainly, that framework has certainly shifted, you know, and we've moved into a space of understanding the social determinants of health and the fact that where you live, work, play matters for health and that, you know, much of what is dictating someone's health outcomes or their ability to exercise or eat better has to do with sort of social and structural inequities and policy. But along the way, I think what we have slowly begun to do also is to really reconsider how we engage with community when we are designing research projects um, and going into community to sort of study the issues. And this is where community-based participatory research comes in. Traditionally, what's happened in academic research and public health and in other disciplines as well is that we as the researchers sitting, you know, in our in our ivory tower in academia, we read the literature and we decide based on what we know and what we've studied, what the next research question should be. And then we write that research question, we design that study, we submit that grant proposal, we get the work funded, and then we go into community and say, hey, we're doing this research study and we're asking this question and we expect folks in the community to just kind of jump on board and help us with that work. Um, the type of work that I really try to do really involves community from the beginning. So from the moment that we are developing the research questions and writing the grant proposal. So one example of that is my work with Roots Community Birth Center in North Minneapolis, where um, Rebecca Polston, who's the owner and an African-American midwife, she came to me and my colleague, Dr. Katie Cosimano, and said, you know, my birth center has been open for about a year. I'm seeing these really phenomenal outcomes. They are very different than the sort of typical outcomes that we um, often see in this community um, with respect to low birth weight and preterm birth and um, just health and well-being generally for people in that community. And so, you know, our next question was, a, what do you think you're doing differently? And B, what do you want to do about it? What, how do you know? How should we proceed? If this all sounds like basic common sense, that's because it is. But what's unique here is that the research question comes from the community. In this case, a practicing midwife named Rebecca, and not a scientific journal. And the results of the research will go back to the community, not just a dusty shelf in a medical library. And together, we were able to write a proposal where Rebecca really helped to drive sort of the research questions. And the study was very much based on what Rebecca was seeing as a community leader and a provider in that community. And then, you know, throughout the project, we were very intentional about how we engaged community members in participating in our research. So we didn't just expect folks to complete our survey or participate in our focus groups, but we really kind of focused on two things. One being having very honest discussions with folks about 
why we're doing the work, why we're asking the questions we're asking and how it will benefit the community in the long run. And then building into our um, research design opportunities for community convenings. And how did they get people to convene? Well, a baby shower, of course. A perfect way to both honor community and create a comfortable setting to follow up on some of their research questions. But let's face it, this is not how research traditionally works. Although some universities, like here at Minnesota, are looking to change the system, most institutions still promote their professors, to a large extent, based on their publications, not for designing their research to directly help communities. Which is ironic, since land-grant universities are mandated to share their knowledge, not just among enrolled students, but directly with the public. You know, public health is a very applied field. I didn't go into this field to publish studies that sit in a journal on a shelf. I went into this field to be able to create knowledge that will affect change. And I think part of creating new knowledge means that you have to involve and engage the people who are closest to the pain of whatever it is that you are, you know, the issue you're tackling. But if we don't try and if we don't make an effort to lift up those voices, I mean, frankly, not even lift them up, but to center that pain and those voices in the work we do, then we're not being effective in our efforts as public health researchers. Sometimes it's not just the nonprofit organizations you've heard of, or the academics, or the activists that are trying to confront racism. It can be someone or something surprising, like a theater. My name is Sarah Bellamy. I'm the artistic director of Penumbra Theater. When your father, Lou, founded the theater back in 1976, when you think back to things he said in interviews or wrote back then, what stands out in your mind? You know, I, I think the thing that I feel when I look back at his sort of body of work and his his representation of this organization is a couple of things. One is I see a man, a black man, working very, very hard to argue the case for investment in a black institution. Uh, that kind of advocacy work he shouldn't have had to do, and yet he had to do it all of the time. You know, there's just these incredible disparities and inequities in investment um, for arts organizations of color. People of color represent about 37% of the U.S. population. But arts organizations that primarily serve people of color only get about 4 to 6% of the national arts funding. Penumbra, which operates in a traditionally black neighborhood of St. Paul called Rondo, employs more artists and administrators of color than all the other theaters in Minnesota combined. Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright August Wilson put it this way, Black theater in America is alive. It's vibrant. It's vital. It just isn't funded. That's right. You know, August Wilson was a founding company member of of Penumbra. I mean, he was part of the original crew, and he, he said that he had never been at a theater where the set and the props weren't sort of what he called a hodgepodge of collected things that people had donated. 
So you can see how these resources, this question of resources, directly connected to our sense of what's possible and the gener- generative nature of, of black artists, I think, can be so stymied when it's not invested in. But this year, Penumbra did get invested in, big time. The Ford Foundation labeled it one of 20 cultural treasures in the United States and backed that assertion with a $2.5 million grant. The Mellon Foundation followed suit with $750,000. And I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing Sarah Bellamy's jaw dropped. But she certainly didn't blink. She knew exactly what she wanted to do with the money. Yeah, I mean, so what you're talking about is um, Penumbra's next life cycle. We are evolving from a black legacy theater company, an American cultural treasure, and we are sort of moving into Penumbra Plus. I I feel to truly activate our mission, there are two key pieces that, that need to come along with the art. And all of those things sort of are the equation for racial healing. You know, the art is what we need to help us dream our own liberation, to 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 imagine worlds that don't exist yet, right? The The wellness piece for me is about acknowledging that racism actually has directly attributable health outcomes that are assailing the black community, things like hypertension, stroke, heart attack, diabetes, uh, certain kinds of cancers. And then there's the equity piece, which is all about training and retooling and rehabituating and and creating new policies. So it is art plus wellness plus equity equals racial healing. That is the, the guiding principles of the Center for Racial Healing, which is Penumbra's future. I think many of us understand how theater can help heal, but I think a lot of people struggle in trying to understand how can black theater help dismantle systemic racism? That is the wisdom of, of the West African Adinkra symbol, the Sankofa. It's this idea that a look, a, a step forward must begin with a glance back, that we are destined to repeat our history if we don't address where we've been. And so all of these sort of philosophical and artistic messages that I got as a child, I distilled into a racial equity framework that I call the three A's. And what it does is it requires that we acknowledge historic abuse and trauma, that we attend to the vulnerable, and that we address inequity with meaningful and proportionate action. And for me, there is no more powerful a place to acknowledge where we've been and the trauma and the, the, the disparity than the visceral heat of a play. You can read about it in a book, and that is an amazing experience, but to feel an actor vibrating energy in front of you and telling a story, it, it is incredibly power, powerful. It's ritualistic. Uh, it's epic. What advice would you have for organizations that are starting out and facing these barriers, facing these money issues? Maybe they don't have partnerships and they want to make a difference, but they're struggling. What advice would you give them? Well, I I think one of the things that I have found successful is being in coalition with other organizations that are similar in mission and values. Uh, The Twin Cities Theaters of Color Coalition has been a a space that for the last seven years has fortified me as a leader, and we've been able to fundraise together and um, share resources. So that's been really powerful. So I suggest finding coalition partners and building a coalition. 
I think the other thing to remember is that there is a tremendous amount of wealth out there and it, it flows in certain directions because of access to power. And so the more rooms that people can put themselves in where they have a seat at that table to understand how money is moving, who has access to it, who they know on the other side, all of that sort of thing, you, you start to see the network and then you can start to see how to interrupt it a little bit to get some resources into these communities that, that may be um, being disenfranchised. As I talk to people, especially since the murder of George Floyd, Sarah, I hear this over and over again, and I bet you do too. We don't want to lose the momentum of the message of George Floyd. People don't want to return to business as usual, which is really returning to structural racism as usual. How do we avoid that and, and to keep this flame burning, to keep this momentum going? I love the image of keeping the flame burning, of carrying a torch, right, and passing that on and on and on. And in that fire is our enlightenment, and it is also our test, that heat is what can sustain us, and it can also burn us. And I think for Penumbra, our way of keeping the momentum is to keep telling the stories. This is why arts organizations of color are so vital to rescuing this nation, because I'll tell you something, when Penumbra has committed for 44 years to putting plays on about the African-American experience, to which everyone is welcome to bear witness and to understand and to learn, that is the American story. And though some of the stories that we tell are hard, like the ballad of Emmett Till, for example, about a 14-year-old boy who was lynched in 1955 and, and set off a, you know, the civil rights movement in some ways, it's not dissimilar from, from George Floyd's murder, right? Those stories can be hard to tell, and people may be more interested in going to see a play that makes white people feel good about history, you know? Like, we sometimes tell the harder stories, but they're necessary. We have to look in the mirror, and we have to look with with lovingly critical eyes at ourselves, at our practices, and, and at our past so that we can do better in the future. I'd like to close in the spirit of the West African Sankofa Sarah Bellamy mentioned earlier, that teaching that in order to move forward, we must understand our past. Let's return to that same speech of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that we opened with. I think these words capture much of what this episode is all about. Finally, in your life's blueprint must be a commitment to the eternal principles of beauty, love, and justice. Don't allow anybody to pull you so low as to make you hate them. Don't allow anybody to cause you to lose your self-respect to the point that you do not struggle for justice, however young you are. You have a responsibility to seek to make your nation a better nation in which to live. You have a responsibility to seek to make life better for everybody. And so you must be involved in the struggle for freedom and justice.
This podcast is a production of the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. You can subscribe to this series, Health in All Matters, through Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review and a rating. That really does help us reach more people. We particularly want to reach out to young people and their teachers because we believe you are a very important part of the solution. So check out our sample discussion questions for high school and college students. You can download them and find some related resources on our website at sph.umn.edu. Thanks for listening and take good care of each other.